Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Jeffrey Tucker, Austrian economist, libertarian, and editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. We talk about the lockdown, the rule of the technocrats, and how centralization exacerbates the crisis. Jeffrey also tells us about what he's learned in his research, the politicization of everything, and what a decentralized future might look like. Jeffrey has been making the case for liberty for many years. He carries on the proud tradition of the Austrian economists like his mentor, Murray Rothbard, in calling out the state on its abuses and making the case for individual freedom. This last year has been a scary turn of events politically, and Jeffrey has helped many to put current events into a proper historical perspective. Whether you agree or disagree with him, I hope this interview gives you food for thought. Jeffrey Tucker, how's everything going? Uh, well, you know, as good as it can be in lockdown. I live in the Northeast, you know, that's bad news. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. I mean, they've really locked things down there. Plus, you got like snowstorms and stuff. Yeah, right. You know, it's very interesting. I was thinking about that this morning because one of the things that Northeast has, has mastered is snow plowing. You, know, <laughs> you can't believe it. It's like, oh, life's normal. And then suddenly there's two feet of snow. I said, what? You know, which under normal conditions would completely disable the capacity of society to function. So how has it come to be that, you know, it's snow, two feet of snow, and then I can drive around? Well, there's a decentralized network of snowplows. And if, I could, if you don't mind, I'm going to slightly genderize it only to, oh. to credit the men of New England. You know, but they love plowing snow. And so out, you know, 4 a.m., they're all out there plowing. So, you know, private people plowing, they plow the neighbor's yards, they plow the neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood yards. And there's no central plan for plowing, except for mm-hmm. on the highways. And they do a pretty good job there. But people take it upon themselves to get it done. I shouldn't have genderized it. I'm sure there's plenty of women out there plowing, too. <laughs> but the point is, we get it done... Not through a central plan, but by everybody pursuing their own interest. And there's no central point of failure, right? Mm. I mean, plowing is a glorious thing. And so through this massive tradition, which nobody in California understands this stuff, even over the Deep South, they don't understand this stuff. New England understands plowing. And we're able to beat back nature and have a functioning life as a result. Of it. I'm, I'm absolutely in awe of it, but I was reflecting on, like, why does it work? Mm-hmm. And it works because the plowing system extracts knowledge from all portions of society, whether you've got just a little shovel or a huge truck or a big tractor, whatever. Everybody's dedicated to plowing and it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the incentives are aligned right as well, right? Like even for, say, a mayor of a small town or something like that, this is very visible. And if they don't get the roads plowed, they will get voted out on the next election. So you know, that's probably right. <laughs> and I'm touched too about the number of private individuals, you know, that just love plowing. They're dedicated to it. It's not like it's not entertaining. The point is they like making a difference and, and making the world a livable place. And people get out there and they do it. And watch weather very carefully. It's like, well, if I have to get up at 4 a.m., I better get to bed at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, they're out there plowing and, and everything works. And, you know, it's fascinating to me how a region that's so good at, at a seemingly impossible task could have freaked out so completely about a, a textbook respiratory virus. 
Yeah, and that's what we want to talk about a little bit today is sort of like the taking over of public policy by technocrats. So obviously, you're in the Northeast and you're feeling it a little more, the sort of government oppression. But before we get into all of that, can you just for my audience, give a background of what you do and how you sort of view this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. And it, this is an organization that's founded in 1933 in the midst of another crisis. You know, I mean, FDR was stealing everybody's gold. You know, we had a central plan. The FDR was telling the farmers to dig up their crops since that'll make the prices go up and the rising prices will lift us out of depression. It was a weird world of mm. a bunch of nonsense that shouldn't have been happening. And so... Our founders established AIR as an independent research institute, independent of both academia and government and any large corporate interest, to just uh, research and tell the truth. So here we are all these years later, and a weird thing happened in 2020 where we suddenly got subjected to this unprecedented human uh, experiment in which we all were treated like agent-based models, non-player characters were supposed to stand six feet apart and put on masks and not go to church and don't dance. And, you know, it was like all this crazy stuff. You're essential, you're not. And couldn't get, couldn't even go to the dentist, you know. So, yeah, it was just a weird time. So I had to make a kind of decision. This was early in January. And I had to kind of position ourselves editorially. And I took a real risk. I said, all right, that's it. You know, we're not going to do this. In fact, we're going to tell the truth as we see it. Mm. So my first article on this topic was late January. I had been writing, Jimmy, about pandemics for about 15 years. So mm. I was kind of a little bit, I would say, mentally, intellectually, psychologically prepared to deal with this. Mm. A lot of other people were sort of blindsided. But and I warned in late January, I said, you know, we can't have the mass quarantines. That just makes everything worse. Little did I know we were going to go into full lockdown. I knew we had the power to do that, but I never imagined they would actually use those powers. By March 8th, as you recall, South by Southwest was canceled. Mm. And that was outrageous because we already knew the demographics of death back in those days. We knew that young and middle-aged people who are healthy are in no danger of any kind of severe outcomes. It's like the danger approaches zero. And uh, the main focus of the severe outcomes from SARS-CoV-2 was on 70-plus with comorbidities. And like, we knew that already. And I just don't think that there were that many extremely unhealthy septuagenarians that were planning on attending South by Southwest. <laughs> I don't think so. So they canceled that conference and, you know, shredded thousands, tens of thousands of contracts, made people eat their plane tickets and bankrupted the hotels and denied the city of Austin lots of tax revenue and all the entrepreneurs that were planning to see these hundreds of thousands of people for that event. You just laid waste to them in a very un-American way. And that was March 8th. And I just flipped out. I said, this is an outrageous response. I remember feeling very alone. I didn't understand why people were not more outraged than they were. I was shocked at the level of acquiescence towards these lockdowns, mostly, I think, because people were convinced that there's no way the government would do this to us if this weren't the bubonic plague. <laughs> well, it wasn't the bubonic plague, and we're gradually realizing this. So, But Americans you know, just did not stand up for their rights, and that was one of the most depressing things. Throughout the spring, I kept writing and writing and writing and saying, this is terrible. These travel restrictions are grim. We shouldn't be shredding the schools at all. The churches, you know, they should, we're destroying business. You can't just turn off an economy, turn it back on again. This is outrageous. So on it went. And 
you know, the momentum of the what I would call the anti-lockdown movement began to grow. And I would say by the summer, there was we were in full swing. And now I think the movement is very, very large. And I think we're preparing to make sure there's nothing like this ever happens again. Mm. What do you think caused everybody to just sort of lay down and obey? You know, Jimmy, there were a number of things. I think it was something of a, of a perfect storm. For one thing, you know, when science shows up and says, this is what you have to do, people get scared, you know, because they didn't pay attention in ninth grade biology class and they don't know what a virus is. You know? so they're like, well, these guys have credentials that I don't have. They must know what's best for me. So there's that. There was also, I think, a primal disease fear. You know, people just most of the time don't feel it, but when the pathogen first comes along, there's a, usually a cycle. You see it throughout history that initially there's a state of denial. Oh, it's no big deal. That's what people were saying in January and February. Mm-hmm. And then once the death figures start coming in, they go, then they exaggerate the problem. They, oh my God, this is real. And then they get carried away in the other direction. And the, so there was that disease panic that kicked in. But there was another thing that was happening in 2020, and it was the politics of the situation. Mm-hmm. And that was chaotic. So, you know, initially it became very Trump-like to dismiss the virus. Then it became very Trump-like to panic about the virus. Then it became very Trump-like to dismiss the virus again. So we kept toggling back and forth between these things. And people began to choose their outlook on the disease according to their political loyalties. What the hell? That's not good science, right? So I think all those things combined. There's another factor here, too, that's pretty interesting. There's a group of really organized fanatics out there that, starting 20 years ago, began to apply uh, techniques of computer modeling to disease mitigation, mm-hmm. mostly led by Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. And he funded all the epidemiology departments around the world, got all the newspapers on the payroll and so on. And so a lot of this has been driven by his own plans, planning, confidence in in computer programs and tremendous confusion over public health. This guy knows nothing, knows nothing about viruses. And he yet he's been the one dictating the terms. All right. So there's definitely, you know, people like Bill Gates that are that are sort of pushing for this thing. But what's their motivation? Why are they wanting to lock people down or something like that? That's the part that really confuses me. Well, I think in Bill Gates is I think he's sincere, actually. I think he's a germaphobe, Mm. which is a typical ruling class attitude, by the way. They when people imagine they've achieved a certain status in life, economically or whatever, you know, educationally, they think of themselves as cleaner than others. And that means more disease-free. That's usually a pattern in history that the ruling class likes to stay away from disease and make their workers and peasants get it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I like, I don't have evidence to this, but, you know, he was shaped, this is a little bit of a weird speculation, uh, Jimmy, but he was shaped his attitudes towards viruses were very much shaped because he was, you know, he invented, he put a couple together Windows, and Windows was destroyed by, I mean, the biggest problem Windows faced for the first 15 years of its existence was viruses. <laughs> and the way he dealt with viruses was to incentivize people to develop virus protection. So it's a very simple model. We've got a clean hard drive, a good operating system, but there's bad pathogens from the outside that are coming to attack it. So how do you deal with those? Well, we keep them away. We identify what they are and block them. 
from coming into our operating system. That's the way viruses and computers uh, work together. And he has that exact same model when it comes to biological viruses, which is a problem because the fact is that for a million years, humanity has coexisted with infectious diseases and we have immune systems to deal with it. Our immune systems scale and they adapt and we don't need necessarily virus checkers and blockers and things like that. Now, we have vaccines, and that's they're of limited use, but they are useful for certain pathogens, and we've had some degree of success in that respect. But that, he sees like the smallpox vaccine as a kind of a virus scanning technology that blocks viruses from getting in your hard drive. So he thinks, well, the answer is we need a vaccine for everything. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think that's how he thinks. It's how he thinks. And, you know, keep in mind this guy's never – bothered to read cell biology for dummies. He could download it on Amazon, but he hasn't done it. He just he thinks he's he's got a godlike intelligence. Look how rich he is. That's the way they think about it. Hmm, interesting. So his mental model of a virus is based on computer viruses, which mm-hmm. has caused him to misevaluate the possible mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't understand anything about immune systems. I mean, this is why we haven't heard about immune systems for the good part of 2020. I mean, like staying clean, excessively clean is actually dangerous for your health. You need to expose yourself. We need exposure in order to, you know, get the new version of uh, iOS. I mean, it's going to make another computer analogy. If you just keep operating off the old the old software, you're going to develop a system that's more, not less, more vulnerable to disease. You're going to have a naive immune system, and you're going to become like a primitive tribe. You know, when the first pathogen comes along, it's going to wipe it out. Mm. So, you know, and this is, Jimmy, I should be clear that a lot of my views on this topic are derived from the brilliant, brilliant work of Sinatra Gupta at Oxford University. I think she's the greatest living epidemiologist. And she pointed out something to me that I had never quite considered. And it goes like this. When we're living in isolation, you know, we can afford to avoid the pathogen. You know, it's it's out there, but we don't get exposed to it. But after, during and after World War One, we entered into a new world of globalism, global travel, global trade, widespread uh, migration. Our immune systems got ever more robust. They scaled. They became very beautiful. It's a difficult transition, right? But we made the transition. And in the course of the 20th century, what we saw created were the strongest immune systems by the most amount of people ever before experienced in the history of humanity. And that is what accounts for the sheer longevity Mm. of our lives and our health Mm. and our height and our strength and all these things. We adapted to a global prevalence of infectious disease in a way that made it possible for us to deal with it. We scaled. Mm. We scaled. As humanity, we scaled according to the prevalence of infectious diseases. And that made the most profound difference in our lifespans and our overall health. That's why we've seen the rate of death, new pathogens you know, fall and fall and fall over the course of 100 years. Don't you find that to be an extraordinary insight? That would be, indeed. If that's true, that would explain a lot of different things. But 
regards to epidemiology and experts and the rule of experts and things like that, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where just a few epidemiologists in the right government positions that don't have any patients of their own that are just sort of, you know, doing things based on, you know, flimsy academic research or computer models that don't make any sense? Like, how did they become the voice of authority? What happened to get us to that this point? You have to go back to 2001. So this is a period in which people began to believe everything could be solved by computers. And we experienced 9-11. Mm. And then we had a president named George W. Bush who became a little bit apocalyptic. The way you deal with the disaster of 9-11 was to invade Iraq, invade Afghanistan, kill people, overthrow a dictator, you know, to engage in big actions, big activities. And you started falling in love with these, this model of big government the responses. So we created the Department of Homeland Security and so on and so on. So in 2005, there began to be a lot of talk about blowback from what we did in the region over there. And there was a sudden fear of bioterrorism. Mm. But George Bush assembled, well, he assigned the task of dealing with bioterrorism to a number of agencies, so Veterans Administration, the State Department, you know, that lab in, in New Mexico, Sandia National Laboratories, you know, all these private labs and these public agencies, and he wanted to have a big White House conference on this. So I hope this is interesting too, because right. this is actually the prehistory. Mm -hmm. There was a big showdown at the White House between two groups. One was the medical doctors and one was the computer science programmers and essentially wackos. And the wackos were led by a guy by the name of Robert Glass and his daughter, Laura, who was a 14-year-old who came up with the idea of social distancing. It's basically, it's a cooties model of avoiding <laughs> diseases. And he put it into his computer, came up with it. Anyway, so he's presenting at the White House so you have to imagine the scene. This would have been late 2005. And so the doctors first presented. And they're like, okay, well, what are you going to do when the pathogen comes? What do you do when a new infectious disease comes along, some biological threat? Well, first you've got to figure out what it is and what's it made of. Is it bacteria? Is it virus? If it's a virus, what kind of virus is it? Is it, is it a respiratory virus? Who does it affect? Every new pathogen has a different demographic effect. You, you want to isolate the people who are vulnerable to it and then encourage other people to go about their business so we don't disrupt society too much and then encourage people to go see the doctor if they get sick. And like, Meanwhile, Bush is falling asleep. <laughs> this is the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. This is not exciting. This is not anything wonderful. So the next group was the computer scientists, none of whom had been trained in medicine, had any experience in disease mitigation, had no patients, you know, they didn't ever take a class in cell biology. And they presented, their presentation included PowerPoint and 3D diagrams and the pathogen arriving from abroad and everybody distancing and schools closing and, and workplaces, you know, uh, shutting down and, and then everybody hiding in boxes and the pathogen gets bored and goes back to Mars where it came from and so on. And this is their presentation, very beautiful, lights are out, music, you know. And Bush is like, now that, that is what I'm talking about. So the conference ends, and he orders the CDC to incorporate, you know, what the computer programmers uh, presented that day into their disease planning, which they did while moderating as much as they possibly could because they're more or less responsible bureaucrats. 
and there it sat for 14 years. So, and during which time, Jimmy, these lockdowners got organized. They started holding conferences. They had their own journals. Bill Gates got involved in funding them. And they began to rise in the profession, much to the panic of all the old school epidemiologists, which were in those days led by Donald Henderson, the man who eradicated smallpox. And he had responded to some of the stuff saying, look, if you do this, you will create a catastrophe far worse than the disease. It's a terrible idea. Well, he died in 2016. He probably prevented us from locking down in 2009. Mm -hmm. H1N1, Mm -hmm. very, very dangerous flu strain, similar to 1918. We didn't lock down. But, and then he probably had some was instrumental in stopping lockdowns in 2012 and 2013 with SARS-CoV-1, which never really made its way over here, but it did hit Taiwan pretty badly in China. But he died in 2016, and our side, you know, the good guys, never really got organized because they were always the old establishment. The old establishment got taken over by these extremely well-funded, passionate lockdowner types. And Suddenly, we arrived in 2020, and they had inordinate influence. And they were organized. They were all citing each other. They all knew each other. They're all friends. We're talking about, talking about fewer than 100 people. Imagine that. Fewer than 100 people probably destroyed the world. And But they were organized, and they were dedicated, and they believed. And they wanted a chance to deploy their grand social experiment. And they got it. In the midst of a panic, in the absence of testing, it's like, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Lockdowners were there with all the answers. So by early March, they were actually late February, they got pretty well organized and laid everything in place. It took them two weeks to go from their first op-ed in the New York Times to full lockdown by March 16th. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. So in your view, is that what happened? Is that the power was centralized into this sort of like bureaucratic class and that bureaucratic class essentially became corrupted and, you know, like or had mistaken notions. They might not be necessarily corrupt, but they just had the wrong ideas in their head and they were able to impose it on everybody because of that centralized power. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And they were enormously successful. I mean, I've read through all their email threads. It took about six weeks for these people, and the email threads kept getting longer and longer and longer. It's actually hilarious, Jimmy. You know how old people are with email? You know, <laughs> like, you know, your grandfather sends you an email, and, and, and you reply, and then he replies back. But this time he adds your grandmother, and then your grandmother's stores <laughs> it to your great aunt, and then your great aunt sends it to your uncle, and then suddenly your brother's got it, and they're going to say, and you're sharing recipes for, for turkey or whatever. But, mm. you know, but this is the way a certain generation communicates. And they did exactly that. It was like Carter Meacher at the Veterans Administration started this email thread. They called it Red Dawn email mm-hmm. uh, thread list. And it was just like, yeah, sometime mid-February. And they been adding public health officials and then elected officials and uh, the CDC guy and oh, this bureaucrat and that scientist and this person and that person. And it just grew and grew and grew and grew to the point that it just became out of control. And then Carter Meacher you know, sent out this guy. was 
by the way, nobody's heard from this guy since March. He's like, you know, ensconced somewhere at the Veterans Administration. But he stayed up all night writing this memo about school closings that he deployed on the entire group on March 12th. And that was the memo that caused everybody to panic. He said, pull the trigger now. If you don't do it now, we're going to be dealing with mass death and suffering. And we've got to go ahead with this. And that's what panicked the, at the same time, the Trump administration, all the states and the public health departments, what do they got to lose? You know, Mm. shut the schools. But you can't shut the schools without also shutting down the malls, you know, Mm. and the playgrounds and everything else that the kids would otherwise be doing. And then you can't stick, you know, primary school kids at home without their parents. So we have to shut the offices to allow the parents to stay home with the kids and so on. So one domino led to the next. And next thing you know, the whole society would just completely broke down over the in a panic led by pseudo-intellectuals who never had any experience in disease medication. Carter Meacher himself was a an emergency room physician who flamed out. It was no good. So he went to work for the VA, as one does. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he became their bioterrorism expert at the VA. And he was the guy who led the lockdowns in the U.S. Wow. All right. So... Going back to sort of like the rule of the technocrats, it's not just epidemiology. Obviously, that's the most prominent one in the past year or so. But it's also lots of other things, including, of course, monetary policy. How pervasive is the rule of technocrats in the United States today? I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Part of me, I'm a natural optimist, Mm -hmm. as as you are too. Mm -hmm. And I like to think we've got some old school bankers that are going to look at the ridiculous hockey stick of money supply increases over 2020 and realize they have to sop this up before disaster happens. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much old wisdom is left. I mean, the new guys in epidemiology and public health have completely taken over. Monetary policy, I'd like to think there's some responsible minds there. Mm. But I'm a little worried about it. I got to tell you, like, I hope that when the Biden administration would take power and immediately open up trade, global trade, he didn't. He immediately reimposed the Trump tariffs. Mm. So something's gone wrong there. I don't know. Maybe something's also wrong with the Fed. I mean, I don't know if you look at the numbers, but they're absolutely terrifying. I mean, it, you know, all else equal, we're looking at Weimar here. I don't believe that's where we're headed because I think there are other mitigating factors. But it's unbelievable what we've done to the underlying economic fundamentals in 20. 20. I don't know if you also looked at the savings rate, but I predicted this back in back in March. I said, you know, in every previous crisis, we see a huge collapse in the velocity of money. Mm. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happened. The velocity has absolutely collapsed and savings rate is through the roof. Those are good things, by the way, for two reasons. One is it provides some good capital going forward for possible future investment should we ever open up and get back to normal again. And the other thing is that it stops the other, what would otherwise be the effects of the rate monetary policy because the quantity of money works inversely to the velocity, which is to say – if people aren't spending the money, it's not going to inspire inflation. If people aren't borrowing money to invest, then the, the hot money is not getting out on the street. So far, that's why we've been spared the worst of the money supply increases. I don't know how long it's going to last, though. Mm. Yeah, and that brings up something else that I wanted to talk about, which is sort of the political nature of everything. You know, obviously, with the lockdowns and, you know, monetary policy and, and things like that, all of it's taken on a very political tone. And it's not about the truth anymore. Why is that? Why isn't it about what the actual science is or what the actual right thing might be? Instead, it's just whatever my team supports, that's what I'm going to do. 
Isn't it crazy? <clears throat> it's even happened with disease. It's like, I mean, and masking, right? So you can tell if a person is Republican or Democrat based on their attitudes towards masks. These should be completely separate. You know, we've politicized society to such an extent that there's nothing that lies outside of its realm, not even cell biology. Mm. That's insanity. Mm. Hey, I had somebody, I couldn't believe it the other day. Jimmy, you're not going to believe this, but you know how Australia is a wonderful country and everybody's charming and friendly and wonderful. We love them, but they're a little goofy mm. in Australia. So, you know, I'm over there on Twitter, you know, talking about cell biology and hard sciences and immune systems and all these things. And this lady from Australia goes, look, I, you know, the problem with you Americans, you're just in love with STEM. You know, it's always science and technology, you know. In Australia, we decided that the best way to deal with the virus is through soft skills. Human connection to others, community, coming together. I'm reading this thinking, that is insane. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, I, I love the arts. I love humane commitment and community and love is fabulous and everything. But, you know, uh, the new pathogen, really, you need to use science to understand it and figure it out and deal with it. Mm. And I think we're headed in the, in the direction where everything has become uh, political and everything has become subjective. And it's all about identity politics, even disease mitigation. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. The good part about it is that there still reality still does exist, actually. And I assume that the reality will prevail in this case, too. Mm. Well, how do you see it playing out? Like, how are, say, people that are just, you know, identifying with one side based on, you know, I mean, like, that identify with one side and believe something that's clearly, like, not scientific? Like, how does it play out where they get converted back or... Are they marginalized or does something happen where they get killed off? Like, what's the process by which they... Well, I, one of the things that I'm really encouraged by is that the lockdown epidemiologists are increasingly going into hiding. The governors that imposed all these policies are trying to unwind them, trying to come up with every excuse to loosen restrictions. I think this is a very good. The degree of public panic is starting to recede a little bit at a, at a time. You know, I'm sure you've read Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds by Macaulay. But he says that humanity goes insane as a collective and people only regain their rationality one person at a time. But we are going through that. I mean, one person at a time is figuring it out. Mm. You know, when I was writing about this stuff in January, February, March, I felt alone. Now I don't feel alone. There's a huge anti-lockdown movement all over the world. And people are coming to their senses. And I, I'm pretty confident that we're going to get implemented some severe restrictions. In the U.S. right now, we've got all sorts of uh, state legislatures who have been left out of this planning all along, but thanks to the states of emergency, that have passed legislation preventing the governors from ever again declaring a state of emergency. Mm. So I think with enough work, we're going to be prepared for the next crisis. We're going to dig ourselves out of this one. We're going to be super embarrassed about what we did to ourselves in 2020, like we're embarrassed about 1970s fashion. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to look back and say, that was a crazy period of insanity. And I think we're going to get smart and try to fix it. That's how I see it playing itself out. Where are you located, by the way? Can I ask? I'm in Austin, Texas. You were talking about Austin, Texas, Austin, yeah. Texas, Austin, Texas. So a good example of that is Texas, right? So Texas is more or less open, but people still perform disease mitigation strategies. They think what they think of as disease mitigation strategies, you know, like, you know, they 
pretend to distance when the authorities are looking, and then when they're in private, they're, they're behaving normally. They mask up when in public. They take it off as soon as they possibly can. And yeah, I spent three or four days in, in Dallas and surrounding area recently, and I, that's what I see. Is that in Texas, it's all kind of virtue signaling performance, but it's not real, you know. And I think that's going to be the intervening stage. You know, we have to finally come to terms with the demographics of this disease and be scientific and realistic. And then the politicians respond. So actually, Jimmy, if I can just roll back slightly, let me just tell you a quick, slight story about a book on public health I read. I think the author of it is Porter. But she recounts, following the bubonic plague and before the advent of the modern era, there were bouts of disease all over Europe. And she said that, that it always goes like this. The disease comes, people deny it. Then they see people die and they panic. They get too scared and they start screaming to their civic overlords to do something. And it's always about getting rid of the unclean people. So the quarantines come about and the lord, the baron, the king, the overseer, whatever it's going to be, responds to the populist fear through draconian measures. And then eventually the virus, you know, circulates among the population, achieves herd immunity, and everybody goes back to normal. Meanwhile, in the course of this, this funny little cyclical pattern, the commercial interests are furious. They don't like trade disrupted. They don't like mm -hmm. these things happening because it ruins, it's bad for investment, bad for customers, bad for the business. Pandemics are bad for business. So they're screaming the whole time. Well, what happened finally as we approached the late 19th century is that public health caught up with the wisdom of the commercial interests and said, you know, in the event of a pathogen, the best thing you can do is keep life functioning normally so you can mitigate the disease with good science and good medicine and rationality while protecting those who are vulnerable. And that's where we were left after 1918. And that's why in, you know, the parrot flu of, of 1929, you know, there was no mass panic. Why in the polio outbreaks between 1948 and 1952, there were no closures. There were no quarantines. It was just, the, you know, looking for vaccines and trying to inoculate people. And in 57, 58, we had a terrible uh, flu. It's called the Asian flu that was on a global scale six times as deadly using a crude death rate as COVID-19 COVID has been so far, and there were no lockdowns. That was a deliberate decision. It was public health united with commercial interests, realizing that we have to keep society functioning properly, and we'll let the immune system scale, we'll, we'll deal with a, an infectious disease and a doc, with doctor-patient relationships. We won't disrupt society. And the same thing happened in 68, 69. Hmm. And that's the way we always dealt with things. So the lesson I take from that is that, that that's still that fundamental dynamic of the new pathogen arrives, that people start to initial denial, then they go into an exaggerated panic, they scream to the overlords to do something. In this case, the epidemiologist took over, and next thing you know, our lives were completely wrecked. But what that means is that the path to, un at least to me what this implies, the path to unraveling all this stuff is to get people calmed down. Get people relaxing, used to being around others again, encouraging people to go out, go out to gatherings, go to sports events, mingle with your friends, travel, feel normal again. And the more you can encourage other people to feel normal again, the more the politicians will not believe that they have a mandate to continue oppressing us. Yeah. The thing that really scares me about what you just said is uh, 
that there is this centralization of power where somebody can sort of decide on behalf of everybody whether or not they're going to be allowed to, you know, travel freely or, you know, uh, to have it be sort of like herd immunity kind of thing. It, it just it feels wrong that somebody has that much power. But as you seem to be saying, the people that are panicking want to give them that power to decide on their behalf, you know. Essentially, through violence, you know, forcing everybody to do something that will help calm them down. Yeah. And the bigger the government gets, the more it just wants to do things, you know, which is another reason maybe in the 20th century we didn't lock down because the government wasn't powerful enough to do it. Mm. We also have, Jimmy, a ruling class problem at work here. You know, we have now about a third of the American public can can work on their laptops. Mm. And so I wonder whether we could have even done anything like this 30 years ago, even if they wanted to. I don't think it would have gotten away with it. Now the ruling class, which is in charge of making all the decisions for everybody else, you know, they can, they love to be at home with their slippers and uh, <laughs> pop open their MacBooks and uh, still earn money, you know. Uh, the New York Times is particularly bad about this point. They had a hilarious thing the other day. They grade your zip code based on, you know, whether or not the virus is hot and potentially threatening to you based on your location. And so if there's 11 cases for every 100,000 citizens, by cases, I mean positive PCR tests, by the way, if there's 11 positive PCR tests for 100,000 people, they consider that a very serious threat. Mm. And they say that you should not go to restaurants. Instead, you should order your food in. Mm. Oh, really? <laughs> but who's going to bring this to you? Prepare the food and bring it to you, you know? Apparently not readers of the New York Times. You know, they, they <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the ruling class for certain, yeah. They are. They are the ruling class, and they speak to the ruling class, and they're readers of the ruling class. Mm. So, you know, the workers and peasants be damned. And so they want them to, in effect, become the sandbags for herd immunity so they can be safe from the pathogen. It's an old feudal dynamic, which we brought back. We're supposed to live in an age of democracy, equality, and enlightenment. Instead, we're approaching this as if we're medieval, you know, we're feudal. We live in feudalism. Yes, yeah. it's really the way they think about it. Yeah, it's kind of like a caste system or something. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly where we've approached this. And that's the way disease was approached in the ancient world. But we're supposed to be better than that. Mm. But we're not. You know? Wow. Isn't it something? You know, we just keep discovering all the ways in which um, humanity, we seem to be getting smart, but then we're not that smart. You know? <laughs> it just happens again and again. One of the things that I've noticed about the past year is that for a lot of people, it really is, it does come down to sort of like signaling which class you are or which side you're on or which, you know, side of the political divide. And I think that has something to do with where you perceive yourself to be in sort of like the ruling class versus the underclass or something like that. But for a lot of people, they don't actually believe in any of that stuff. They just want to show that they're part of that team so they, you know, mask up in their cars when they're by themselves or something. Isn't it something? And the inability of people to think more broadly is actually quite striking. You know, I'm always haunted. You know, I'm a huge fan of this interwar thinker. Oh, actually, it wasn't just interwar. He's one of the great economists of the 20th century, Ludovic Mises. Mm -hmm. He wrote this book in 1929. He said, the genuine liberals, by which he means the classical liberals, are the only people who really do think about the common good. Mm. You know, we think about all classes, all races, you know, the good of society, the function of society. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I hope that that's true. He, he said this injecting to the idea that capitalism is about, you know, protecting capitalists. No, it's not. Uh, free economies are about the good of all. 
And I think it, it's right in a sense. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that's just really struck me is how myopic people are. You know, I remember early on, well, you remember this too. Mm-hmm. It was uh, back in mid March, or let's just say, it was, just pretend it's like say the first week of April, and you're talking to your friends, and they say things to you like, "I don't know. I don't think lockdowns have been so bad." Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I've rather enjoyed them, you know. It's like, well, you know, that's privilege talking right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First world problems, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the thing about what Mises said that I think is absolutely correct is that if you are a classical liberal and you do care about freedom, you care about individual liberty and individual rights, then you would care about the fact that if you do lock people down, you no longer have freedom of assembly, you no longer have freedom of religion, you don't really even have the freedom of speech in a lot of these cases, because as soon as you say something that pisses off Twitter, you're getting kicked off. Oh, isn't that true? Let me ask you, do you self-censor? I mean, I, I find I, I do. Yeah, I mean, at least on Twitter. I mean, I got absolutely roasted back in March for saying like, I can't believe there aren't that many churches that are opening and like every single one around me was closing. And I said that on Twitter. I think I got ratioed, even though my tweet had like a thousand likes, which is kind of hard to do. But that sort of like turned me off towards, okay, they might start censoring me at some point if this (sighs) thing keeps going. I worry sometimes. I I don't know why I haven't been censored yet. I thought of a great uh, tweet the other day. I wanted to to denounce social distancing, and I came up with a great little couplet. I was stuck in an article that I'm publishing tomorrow. But I, instead of putting it on Twitter, instead, I said, hey, everyone, am I... Is it okay with the rules of Twitter that I criticize social distancing? <laughs> <laughs> I just asked the question. Yeah. People said, nope, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a way sort of around it is if, if you turn your statement into a question, they can't really accuse you of anything. <laughs> Which I've done too, right? It's like, okay, does it feel normal to people that, you know, we're essentially under house arrest right now? Like, <laughs> like does that feel normal? Like, or yeah, does that no, feel I more do. like communist, you know, Russia or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've done this too. I've gotten, I feel like I'm trying to get it. We're all trying to get around the censors these days. I, I said something the other day about, you know, you can't rule out the possibility that acquiring natural immunity through exposure might be your best strategy, as this New York Times article points out. Then <laughs> 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 I put a link there. It's like, all right, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying something outrageous, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that centralization of power is really what it comes down to for me. Is that, like, oftentimes you do get people that are good in those positions of power, and then things are fine. But then, like you were saying. At some point, somebody is going to acquire that power that is not qualified for it or has completely insane ideas or is using it as a way to advance their career and only cares about power or whatever. And you get complete disaster. And that's sort of the story of the centralization of power. It's kind of like the infinity gauntlet or whatever. At some point, somebody's going to abuse that power to do evil in the world. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world in which, you know, the great mediator is the state, you know, and 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 that state is centralized. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really does point to the fact that, you know, we need a future of decentralization and unmediated relationships with each other in our personal lives, our economic lives, our financial lives, which, you know, and also we need technologies and tools that, that cannot be shut down, even if they want to shut them down, which 
you know, you and I share a passion for cryptocurrency. I mean, it's not lost on people that the entire market of Bitcoin and everything associated with it was not shut down mm. and could not be shut down and continued to function. And I think that, you know, is a very impressive aspect of what Satoshi invented. I mean, he invented it to keep that from happening. And it's performed absolutely beautifully mm. throughout 2020. Mm. And that is probably the big thing that, at least for me, has kept me going during this lockdown. I know so many of my friends yeah. have just gotten enormously depressed, right? And they, like in the past year, I feel like many of them have aged like five or more years just by looking at their photos or something. Uh, oh, wow. Because, I mean, they're under constant stress. They're constantly anxious. And they this is not a cost that, that really they should be paying, but you know, nevertheless, they are. Whereas for me and for other Bitcoiners that I know, it's like, oh, there's Bitcoin and we're going to be fine. You know, even if the rest of civilization, you know, like continues down this path of destruction, we at least have something that will sustain us going forward because we have this decentralized store of value, this way of being able to store our savings where the government won't be able to take it away. And we have some hope uh, where a lot of people don't, which is really, oh, really sad. True. And I don't know what's going on in your world, but you know, I went through three years without a single person asking me to set up their Bitcoin wallet. <laughs> but now everything has changed. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, the price has something to do with it, but and the price has something to do with probably the enormous amount of money printing as a result of the lockdowns, which... Yeah, I think all those things combined. You know, I think, you know, we were kind of stuck, you know, for a few years at this sort of endemic price, you know, of Bitcoin up or down a couple thousand dollars over, you know, circling around 10K. But we knew there was going to be a price back out at some point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the combination of the money printing, the lockdowns, the perception that a financial crisis could be awaiting us, you know, all that combined. And and it just it just took off, you know, and we, we all knew it was coming at some point. You know, I'm not sure where you are as a forecaster. I've been I've had a pretty good instinct, you know, since about 2013 about the price. So I knew something was going to happen at some point. I didn't expect it to happen so fast, though. It was really remarkable. Mm. All right. So we're getting towards the end because I know you have to go. But just a question about the lockdown. How do you think it ends? Like what's over the next six, nine months or? I think there's going to be a huge blowback in every aspect of life. And I think it's going to end up in some good places and some bad places. But there'll be no more social distancing. There's going to be social closening. I think offices are going to come back. Cities will eventually come back, not in, in the short term, but uh, over the medium and long term, I think they're going to come back. People are going to be organizing their lives in a way to avoid the next lockdown. And politics is going to be organized around this. I think the Republican Party is going to be an anti-lockdown party. And eventually, the Democrats are going to come around uh, too. And there's going to be a huge revolt against public health and a massive distrust of government. We're already seeing that coming. So all of this is is headed our way. It's going to be grim and one hand and wonderful on the other. But people say, well, they'll never be, we'll never go back to normal. This is the new normal. Baloney. That is not true. Humanity will not live in cages. Could take us a while, but eventually we're going to get there. And I see the lockdowns as being, in a sense, the final showdown between tyranny and liberty. Mm. 
Final. We've seen the worst of it. Final. <laughs> well, in our lifetimes. In our lifetimes. <laughs> that uh, would be interesting. The, I would like to lifetime. see a final showdown. Yeah, I would too. But I mean, look, <laughs> it seems like every hundred years or so, humanity has to learn the same damn lessons all over again. So, But at least in the course of our lives, I think this is it. Mm. The lockdowns were, in a sense, the apotheosis of serfdom. Mm. And now that we've seen how bad it can get, now we need to fight and get back our human rights, our dignity, and get set back on a flourishing path. That could take a few years, and I think it's going to take psychologically as much as 10 years for us to recover from what's happened. Mm, we're all shell-shocked and suffer yeah. from PTSD. Okay. Well, yeah. so before we go, where can people find you, Jeffrey? Well, I'm at the American Institute for Economic Research right here in Lockdown, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I'm on a 200-acre estate with a lake and several houses and a gym and everything, so I'm safe mm. and good. But by the way, since your listeners are wanting to support human liberty and and freedom and sound money and these kinds of things, AIR does need support. So if you have crypto you want to throw away, you can go to our website and, and do that. I would love to have your support. But even if we don't get that, subscribe to our daily email. It's really fun. Our content, I deliberately set out to make it intelligent, objective, research-based. So no condescending nonsense. We're not going for clicks. We're going for wisdom and enlightenment. And it's my pleasure to serve as editorial director. And you can find me there also on Twitter at Jeffrey A. Tucker. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on and teaching us about all that's going on. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for having me. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Jeffrey can be found at at Jeffrey A. Tucker on Twitter and AIER.org. Until next time, fiat delenda est. <laughs>